The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Let me ask this. Has, for those of you who have, you know, more or less heard the last, at least maybe the last couple of messages on this, um, has it made, kind of, is it coherent and making sense? Kind of the way it's being presented and all that? Um, Good. Um, and perhaps, as Bill Johnson through Orla has told us, perhaps some of this growls at us. It certainly, some of these things growl at my Protestant sensibilities, very much so. Uh, but I'm, I try to be more of a believe the Bible and what it teaches person more than I try to just be a Protestant. Do my best to do that. And that, you know, repentance, which is such a beautiful gift that God gives us, Acts chapter 5 says that God granted repentance to Israel. Repentance is his gift to us, not our gift to him. And, you know, repentance is at the very least a lifelong process. And I, yeah, your mind is ever changing. Yeah, yeah, I just said that without even, that's what I meant. So, but it it does help to clarify. (laughs) It is a lifelong process of learning more and more truth, changing your mind, you know, from error to truth. And um, at least if you're in the same boat that I am of not having it all together yet. So, and I suspect that throughout eternity, because God is, um, you know, God's bigger than infinity. You know what I mean? Like he, 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 he holds infinity like it's a speck. You know what I mean? And he, he is, he is, uh, he is reality. And so the journey of repentance, of metanoia, of ever being you know, conformed inside and out to God's truth, um, well, it's a lot of things you could say about it. There's a lot of times it's like growing pains. You know, it hurts, but good to grow, right? You know, and so uh, sometimes you hear about being, you know, saved and stuck. I don't want to be saved and stuck. I want to be going on with God, being about Abba's business, etc., right? So hopefully these things have made sense. Um, and we'll seize here from some of these quotations here. Uh, let me see here, though. Let's, um, now let's start, yeah, let's start with the handout here, at least for now. And then uh, we've got a handful of scriptures we'll jump into. Not too many. Um, let's see here. Tamara? Oh, babe, could you please bring me a Bible? from my shelf, a New American Standard. Please, thank you. Um, But let's start here with Malcolm's uh, handout, or you know what I mean. Malcolm Smith, this is all from a great book called uh, The Power of the Blood Covenant. What's today's date? Yeah, not the third. Anyways. So here's a quote uh, under point A. Malcolm says this, The emphasis of repentance is not so much about our turning from sin, though that's there, obviously there, but rather our turning to Jesus, which is, we could preach on that for a while, and that's so true. Um, As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, one of the, uh, what the author of Hebrews, thank you, calls one of the fundamental doctrines is repentance from dead works and faith Towards, so it's not just turning from, it's what are you turning towards? A lot of people 
have been in a great de- theological deconstruction uh, since, you know, really the, the grace revolution has taken off. But you don't just want to deconstruct and then find that you've gotten rid of everything and have no ground to stand on at all. You know, what are you... you re- de- you got to reconstruct. Or as Lynn, I heard Lynn Hiles say, so many people deconstruct, they didn't reconstruct, and now they self-destruct in their faith walk. And it's I've seen it, man. It is. It's so true. And it's, yeah. I've, I've, I've never found anything beyond Jesus that, uh, yeah, anyways, that's, I don't want to go down too far down that rabbit trail. All right. He says this, turning to Jesus, uh, the Son of God, uh, second, end of the second line there, point A, in whom are the covenant and our salvation. So notice that. In whom are the covenant and salvation? Even the name Jesus took, Yeshua, salvation. See, it's, it's not just a thing. Oh, look at my, I got my, look at my, you got your salvation with you? I got mine, it's right here. See, isn't it so cute and wonderful? I just take it with me everywhere that I go. No, it's a person. It's a person. Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, talking about Jesus, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And then he goes on and he says, but I count it all as rubbish that I may know him. It was personal. You know, it wasn't uh, just a thing. It was a, it's a person. He says in the New Testament, the, this act of repentance, and, and we looked at this a lot last week, I, I basically from the book of Acts. Um, how when a person came to faith, what happened? Boom, baptism. All right, so we looked at that a lot. He says it always came, uh, this act of repentance and faith in the person and work of Christ, always, uh, we have more handouts if anyone would like one. Somewhere. Where'd they go? I don't, I'm not sure if the, uh, Linda and Sherry, oh, do you have one, Linda? Okay, sorry. Um, this act of repentance and faith, he says, always came to focus in the uh, person work of Christ, came to focus in baptism, the dipping of a person into water or pouring it on them, invoking the name of the Trinity. Now listen to what Malcolm says here. And as a lifelong Protestant, you know, these are some of these truths that kind of growl at me a little, but I just got to stick with Scripture as best I know how to. He says, many object to this. But I ask you to bear with me and see that baptism was unquestionably part of the salvation process. Now, if you remember, for example, last week, I believe, or maybe the week before, Peter, on the very first sermon, New Covenant sermon, day of Pentecost, he preaches to them, and many of them, they, they, they believed, they were pricked in their, in their heart, it says. Let me find the verse here. Uh, Acts 2.37. Now see, why is that still so small? I made some progress on my never-ending war with that projector and computer. That's supposed to be bigger. I came in here, I worked on it. I figured, just pray through. Pray me through, people. All right. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? All right, here's the answer. Peter said to them, repent. Now, as we already talked about, repentance just for the sake of 
It's just so hard to get religion out of us sometimes, and I'm talking to me here, man-made religion, you know, dead religion. Repent, metanoia, change your mind. You got to think, he's talking to religious people, not a bunch of sinful people. These are people who traveled from all over the Roman world to come to Jerusalem uh, for the feast, for uh, uh, Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost. So, just as when John the Baptist comes out and Jesus and, and start proclaiming, repent for the kingdom is at hand. They were talking to people who are already externally very religiously oriented and to look at their behavior at least, godly, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's just another. Anyways, repent each one of you and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And we looked at verses last week where uh, Paul, when uh, Ananias comes to him after he has his Damascus Road encounter, and uh, when you read it in Acts chapter 9 or 10, uh, 9 I think, um, you don't get as much. But later Paul relays the story to Felix, I believe it was, and explains to him how uh, Ananias said to him, more or less, he said, so Jesus sent me here so you could re regain your sight. Now, stand up and be baptized for the remission of your sins. I mean, it's over and over. At, you know, Acts chapter uh, 19, which we had looked at that, whenever uh, Paul was, where was he at? Ephesus, I believe, I can't remember. Anyways, um, they had already been baptized, but it was so important to Paul he said, what have you been? Well, John's baptism. Now, these people were already believers in Jesus. But it was so important to Paul to find out how their baptism, what, what kind of baptism. And they said, well, of John's. And, and basically, well, that was one leaving the old covenant, but still looking towards what was about to come. But now you need the real fulfillment of it. So he each he rebaptized all of them. You know, and so that was that's how important it was, you know, to them. And so. Um, I don't want us to gloss over these things. I want to, or at least for myself, I want to take these things serious, you know. Now look here, uh, point B. Malcolm continues, and he's referencing Mark 16, which is going to all the world, preach the gospel, uh, who, you know, lay hands on the sick, cast out demons, all of that. Uh, but, but anyways, and then in Matthew 28, you have kind of a, a slightly different uh, so, you know, Great Commission, they're both called. Anyways, look at this. Uh, it's kind of funny, sorry. The, the Matthew 28 version, that's not in your notes. The Matthew 28 version of the Great Commission is the Baptist version. Go and preach the good news and baptize. Mark 16 is the charismatic version. Heal the sick, cast out demons, speak in tongues. Uh, you know, so you got, Jesus got everybody covered, you know. You're good. You're good to go. Everyone, baby. Uh, nonetheless, he says here on point B in reference to Mark 16, he says, certainly the apostles understood that baptism was the very, uh, was the act where repentance and faith came into focus. The command to be baptized is the very first call to receive the gospel. And we know from scripture that's so true. Then he says this, and being baptized, designated as Christians, 
those who receive the message into their hearts. I mean, a few weeks ago, I gave you guys a ton of quotes from some church fathers, but I also included a quote from Luther and a quote from Calvin. And, and that's what Calvin said. Uh, how, do, how do I know I'm and from his institutes? How do I know I'm a Christian? Answer, because I've been baptized. Uh, more, I mean, that's the gist of it. So um, for throughout church history, that's, that's how people viewed it. That, you know what I mean? So now, this last part here, point C, which is a, obviously a much larger section, um, but it's really powerful, I think. So check this out, point uh, C. Malcolm says, the modern Christian recognizes this, and what he was, you'll see what he's talking about, but strangely has avoided baptism and substituted other physical actions to express faith in Christ. To accept Christ, people are told to any number of things, and he lists some of them here, you know, in a church service, raise your hand. There's one. Or walk down to the front of the church. That's another one. Uh, or look up into the face of the evangelist, I guess. All right. He said children and teens at summer camp, camps are often challenged to, to throw a stick into the fire. All of these actions are the attempt to involve our physical bodies in the faith. But why not simply do as Jesus commanded? Why invent new and strange ways? But these various substitutes. These various substitutes for baptism emphasize the human acceptance of salvation. Raising the hand and like responses. Now, this is really good what he's about to say here. Uh, check this out. Raising the hand and like responses place the whole emphasis on the human decision to accept what God has done. And Max, you said some things along these lines a week or two ago, maybe last week, but it was really good. Um, he's a kind of giving a vote of confidence to Jesus and his salvation. It becomes a rather strange means of saying to God and my fellow, fellow believers, me too, I've accepted him. But notice what he says here. This is the part I really like. But in baptism, we are, well, if, it, if it's that bad for you, just slide over here. There's a wonderful speaker right over there that's still working. Okay, try again. Um, where was I at? Oh, oh yeah, Malcolm says, but in baptism, can you hear me? Okay. Had a triple check. May I ask again? All right. But in baptism, we are passive. It is something we submit to. It is a right that is done to us by another. It is the dynamic action of the faith by which... And that thing is... Now this one's wigging out. Sorry. It is the... Uh, Dynamic action of the faith by which we helplessly present ourselves to the Holy Spirit for God's acceptance through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now notice this. Malcolm says, even a cursory reading, just you know, a casual cursory reading of the New Testament, shows that to the early church, baptism was more uh, than the symbol by which we announced to God and humans that he or she had accepted Christ. Something, and this is what I've been trying to drive home, something happens in baptism. It is a symbol, but a symbol by which the Holy Spirit actually conveys to us what this rite symbolizes. Baptism is, I love this, baptism is where the Spirit lays hold upon us and declares 
that we are included into the covenant and joined to Christ, he is saying, this one is mine. The New Testament speaks both as an act performed in water and also as the work of the Spirit connecting the believer to the work of Christ. We come to baptism as to the doorway into the death of Christ, that by the action of the Spirit we may, be rise, uh, we may rise to join the living Christ. I thought that was some good stuff. I really like the part where he points out that it's, it's, we're passive in baptism, you know, and that's, oh, it's so beautiful. And, and throughout church history, there, there have been uh, various modes, I guess, of baptism that until the Reformation were all considered valid. So uh, in the very early church, um, they just, you know, they preferred running water, water that's moving. It wasn't like some dogmatic. It was just like like today. We may have our first in in your church or denomination or our, our yours, theirs, our. We may have a preferential way of doing it, but maybe you know something happens and you got to do no, no big deal. It wasn't like it was a squabbling issue. It was just so, just this. You know, they preferred running water, and um, actually, and some of you may be familiar with this, there are still groups this day that do it this way. Um, in my experience, at, uh, at least in, in, you know, not infant baptism, but people, you know, older children or adults or whatever, um, baptism seems to most of the time be one dunk, if you will. But it was, it's also in the early church you find, and even today you can still find sometimes, where they'll do it three times. I baptize you in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all are considered valid and great and just kind of, you know, it's... And then also uh, there is, uh, uh, throughout church history and the writings of the early church, um, also uh, baptizing children was always the practice of the church until uh, some, some people in the Reformation came against it, not all. Um, that was always considered valid and ac accurate. And I probably won't get to it today, but I am planning next week to really get into more of that because that was always the plan, but people have been asking too. So um, a little more insight on that dynamic, which we will get to. Um, but just as we've, as I've thrown out there uh, several times uh, already in the New Testament, Paul teaches clearly that what circumcision was in the old, baptism is in the new. And so you think about Acts chapter 2, which we looked at whenever Peter tells them, this promise, talking to, you know, to the Jewish the people, the believers there, is to you and your children. And if you would have told a Jew, uh, a religiously observant Jew, you know, well, you can't circumcise, you know, because they have to, it has to be a believer's circumcision. They have to have a profession of faith before they could be circumcised. Well, they would have said, well, man, you're nuts. I don't think they'd have said it that way, but something. They said, Yahweh told us very clearly, eight days. Now, the, the, the one terrible and tragic exception to that is Abraham. 
Because when God, when God introduces this covenant rite of circumcision, he tells Abraham, now, go back and circumcise all your male servants. Can you imagine that? Talking about a church service I wouldn't want to be at. I just always picture Abraham. You know, he's taking as long as he can. Like, you ever, you know, you're, uh, fellas, you ever, you're at work one day and whatever you did, you know, and you know, the queen is at home ready to get you, your wife. Like, you know, whatever you did, you didn't, you shaved and you left hair everywhere or you told her you would pick up whatever and you didn't, you know, whatever. And, and that's one of those days where you're like, boss, I'll stay late. <clears throat> you know, like, <laughs> just, or maybe you are the boss and you just stay late, you know. Uh, one of those, but I can just picture Abraham, like instead of riding his donkey from the office back to the home, or the, you know, he, he just chose to walk that day and probably took a few little rabbit trails, you know, took the long way home, the scenic route, you know, just hoping Hoping against all hope, you know, that he misheard God or something. Gets home, though, you know, guys, we got to talk. Okay, boss, got all these servants. Guys, I don't really know how to tell you this. And scripture doesn't tell us, but I don't know how many of them said, boss, I forgot to tell you, I'm quitting today. <laughs> out of there. You know, I don't know. But that is a church service I'm glad to have missed. Um, I hope those quotes from Malcolm were, I enjoyed them. It's a wonderful book, too, by the way. The, uh, a lot of factors come into that, but um, that's kind of, it was, it was so patriarchal. It was so, yeah. Because you think about, this is, Abraham, this is a long time before Moses even came along. And even with Moses, you know, you think about under the law, and we use this example a lot, but, it, you know, you're a woman and you're married and your husband dies, you have to marry his brother if he wants to marry you. But if he doesn't, uh, there was a whole thing where they had to do, I, th I forget what it was. I think they had to take off one of their shoes and walk around in public. I forget exactly. What, it's all, it's, uh, it's in there, but I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But yeah, it was, I, I wonder if that was part of it also, you know. Um, but it was understood that they're one flesh. That was there too. And so that sort of covered them all, for lack of a perhaps better way of putting it. But um, I want to uh, pick up here in John chapter 3. Man, I'm already pressed for time here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be as quick as I can here. So, um, but I got a few scriptures that I think are just uh, very insightful and that will help us in some of this, this uh, exploring this topic. John chapter 3. And this is the infamous, you know, account of Jesus and Nicodemus. But I, again, I want to reiterate, as you're turning to John 3, I want to reiterate um, what Malcolm says here about how the church from the book of Acts through early church, through church history, it was always, do you believe in Jesus, Son of God, forget, you know, for your forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. Okay, then be baptized. It is. It is very traceable to look back through history and to find where the modern evangelical idea of 
you know, think about this. Think in the, in the book of Acts where the gospel is exploding on the scene. There's, there's never anything like, pray this, just pray this sinner's prayer. It's not there. And we can trace the origins of that. It's a very new uh, during the America, America's, uh, the Great Awakenings, basically, is, is where a lot of that sort of stemmed from. It's a very new um, development, um, which is interesting. Not that I'm against it. I was baptized when I was young, but when my heart was truly converted to the Lord, it was in what you'd call a sort of sinner's prayer. Not that I, you know, it's, it's not some magical formula. It was just me in my heart saying yes to Jesus. You know, and so that was when my heart was truly converted. And so, um, let's pick here in John. Let's uh, start in verse, John 3, verse 1. Uh, now, there was a man, we know the story. There was a man of the Pharisees, but, but I know we know this story, but I, I don't want to, sometimes we know things, we're too familiar with it and we miss some things, you know. Pharise, uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, as in secretly, in other words, say, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, now look at this. What kind of response is this? I don't even know. We, hey, we know you're from God because nobody could do And here's his response. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a lot in that. Um, notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, unless you're born again, you won't go to heaven, which I believe you need to put faith in Christ, be baptized, and go to heaven. Don't misunderstand me, but that's not what he said here. But see, we just kind of read that into this. Because remember, what was John the Baptist and Jesus' first message? Change the way you're thinking about this situation, because now the kingdom is here. It's at hand. So he's talked, the, the kingdom of God, which scripture talks about, is not about, we, we need to make sure we're, the kingdom of God spoken of in scripture is not even remotely synonymous with heaven. That's not the point. Now, does kingdom from king's domain, is God's domain in what we think of as heaven? Of course. But it's also here. Thy kingdom come here. And according to Jesus, it came with him. Right? And um, so, so you, he says you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is powerful. See, we are surrounded by the kingdom of God because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? And so the kingdom is here, and there's a lot to say about that. According to Jesus, Luke, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you, or some translations, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What, either way. There's, a, there's kingdom all around us, baby. Quite literally. Look there, middle sign. Kingdom. Woo! You know? Illustrated sermon, baby. Now, so he says you can't even see it. Think about that. Right now, there are people surrounded by the kingdom of God, but they can't see it. They can't perceive it and function in accordance with it, including many of us believers. That's why I, I, I there's probably a better way to say it, but I say it a lot. Jesus is reality. See, we think, man, life sucks and work is awful and uh, dog won't shut up about whatever and this, that, and the car. And, and then I go to church. And if you're one of the, uh, what's the Marines? The few, the few, the chosen? 
if you just happen to be a Christian who's lucky, I, I, I don't mean, to, you know, lucky enough to find the church that doesn't beat you down every week, you know, you go to church and, you know, you, you get this morsel of hope and kind of lift it up, but then it's like, oh, back to the real world. No, Jesus is the real world. Jesus is reality in every sense. Does that, does that make sense at all? Yeah. But usually, instead of what Paul told us, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk strictly by sight. You know, uh, our faith is in, you know, the daily headlines and, and that informs us. No, the kingdom should be what informs us. This should be what informs us. If you want some news, I highly recommend this book. It's even got something you'll never find on the real news, the, the, the worldly news. Uh, this is the real news. It's got good news in it. My gosh. Woo! Moving on. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born? Oh, by the way, that word when Jesus said born again, it can mean again, uh, but at, at the very least an equal, if not better, and, and it very well probably should be translated this way, is the word above. That's what he really says here. You should be born from above, right? Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time to his mother, mother's womb and be born, can he? Now look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of what? Notice he mentions water there and the Spirit. Now that's a theme throughout Scripture, by the way, like in the, in, in the beginning. Well, literally, in Genesis, in the beginning, uh, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the face of the deep. And you see in many places through Scripture, you'll find this connection. Um, we'll look at some more in a moment, maybe, between the Spirit of God and water, right? Think about uh, the flood, and, and then you've got the dove come, and then you've got what symbolizes the Holy Spirit, but you've got water there, and it's a new world after all that. This, that's a motif through Scripture. Anyways, Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, he says, don't, don't be amazed that I said this to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And I think there's a lot in those statements there, but at the very least, the one thing I think we can, we can pull out of this, wind, you, you can't see wind, but you can see what wind does. And so when you are reborn of the water and spirit, you don't get a you don't get a new face. You don't you don't you look the same, but I can see what's I can see the, the results of it. Something's happened here. You're different. You know? And so just like the wind, I can't see what it's do. I can't see wind, but I can see the effects of it. You've been born again. You didn't get a new brain, you didn't get a new body, you didn't, you know, but something's different. Something you can't see, something in here. What's what Paul called this treasure in these earthen vessels, right? Now, I, I, there's some more good things here, um, but I got to move on here just for the sake of time. Um, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Check this out. This is, you talking about ver Orla? You talking about verses that growl at you now. Here we go. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3, and then. Uh, we're going to start down in verse 18. It says this, For Christ um, also died for sins once for all. Woo! 
Aren't you glad? Must have worked. The just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.18. Now notice this. So that he might bring us to God. Max, there it is again. There's that, our passivity. It's all I can do is say yes. Notice that. That he might bring us to God. Boy, I got to pray through. I got to break through this atmosphere. I got to, you know, some people say when they're, you know, we've all said and felt this way too, but you hear, oh man, when I, my prayers, like Andrew Womack says, people say, man, when I pray, it's, you know, it's, it's, it feels so heavy. I'm, I'm in such a dry spell and my words, they don't even get above the roof, no less heaven. And Andrew says, well, they don't need to go above the roof or the ceiling or up to, God's in here. So that's what Andrew says. That's why you bow your head when you pray. Hey, God, because he's in there, you know, like that's where God's at. <laughs> hey, God, let's talk about it. So he brought us to God. <sighs> this pen, I'm, you know, you guys know I get excited. I don't know what to do. I want to kick. I want to jump. I want to, I'm about to throw this pen. I keep getting so excited. If I hit you with it, don't sue me. We'll settle out of court, okay? But I'll try not to hit anybody. He brought us to God. We don't have to climb a spiritual mountain or take a literal pilgrimage. We don't have to do anything. Man, he brought us to God. And then he says this, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, wait a minute. You want to talk about a verse that'll growl at you? It says that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. Well, if he was made alive in the Spirit, what's the other side of that coin? He must have been spiritually dead. And you want to get thrown out of a church, you start preaching like that. Because, boy, people do not like that. And yet, there it is. All right. In which he also he went, and here's some stuff here we can't get into, but stuff that is well, and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. I love this, the patience of God. See, our evangelical modern minds don't read the story of Noah and find a merciful and patient God. And yet Peter, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, did. Beautiful. But notice what he says here. Uh, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, notice what he says, were brought safely through the water. Now look at verse 21. Corresponding to that, being brought safely through the water, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So there, there needs to be a sincere faith there, in other words. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Once again. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt. So it couldn't be like, you know, you Christians, I don't know, you could be right, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But I'll be baptized, and maybe just in case, if this stuff's true, I'll be covered. Like, it's, he's saying, no, it's not that. It's not just some sort of ritualistic thing that just magically does something. There needs to be a sincere faith corresponding with your baptism. Now, you could be baptized as a child and come to that faith that once you get, oh, that's perfectly valid. That's not, there's no contradiction there. So, uh, but, uh, you know, as far as I know, I'm not currently drunk, right? 
Not, not, not a laugh or anything. I got Kit shaking her head a little, but nobody even... As far as I know, I'm not inebriated, intoxicated, and yet... Yeah, that's right. And I got some duct tape. I need, that does not line up with my theology. I need to block that out. That's not, you know, so... Again, it's not a magical formula. I was dipped in the water, and... No, there has to be a corresponding conversion. The heart has to be converted. There's got to be a, a faith there, right? And so, but again, it's not... I don't want us to think... They're two sides of the same coin. So I don't want us, we, I think we've made separation and distinction, sort of a false dichotomy where there doesn't need to be one. And again, this never means, well, I, I, I came to faith in Jesus and then six months later, I was on my way to be baptized and died in a car wreck on the way. Nobody throughout church history, and I wouldn't care if they did, uh, I would say that, you know, nobody has, you know, says, well, then you go, generally speaking, Oh, well, that's too bad. You know, you had faith in Christ, and uh, they do. They do. Now, interesting, the, the two largest churches in the world, Catholic and Orthodox, who believe in the necessity of baptism, they too do not teach. Uh, I was listening to a wonderful Orthodox priest out of Salt Lake City yesterday, and he was talking on, actually on this, uh, he was talking on a wide variety of topics, but this one came up, and he just elaborated that point as well, that no, the Orthodox Church has never taught, okay, I'm, I'm converted, I believe in Christ, um, but I've not been baptized yet. Oh, I fell over dead. Well, you go to hell. No, certainly not. And so that's, uh, really, that's never been the teach. The church has always said, you got this coin, you got two sides of it, faith and baptism, but it's not as if, again. I did have a guy tell me that once, though. I did, a, I told you uh, a few weeks ago, I had a class uh, at Bible college on comparative religions. Um, you can turn to Titus chapter 3. That's where I'm closing, by the way. Uh, just so you know. Anyways, I was interviewing this guy for my class. And uh, that's what he, he told me. He was, he was Catholic, but he told me um, that he believed that your you, faith, you're converted, you believe, and you're coming to get baptized, and you fall over dead before you walk in the church doors. It is do not pass go, do not collect whatever, straight to hell. But that is... Very, yes, you will meet people who say that, but it's very minority. It's very un, it's very against church history and more importantly, scripture. Titus 3, in closing, we'll begin in verse 4. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful verses here. Oh, now see, this one's better. Higher, bigger. Well, at least something worked. Look at this. But when the kindness of God our Savior, oh, so beautiful, and his love for mankind appeared, well, when did that happen? When did this appear? In the person of Jesus. That's, you know. He, again, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, now notice this, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, be born from above through the water and spirit. The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly oh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This verse is good too, here, right here, verse 7. So that being justified, made righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And, uh, verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently. 
so that those who, of you who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So he just said, you're not saved by your works, but engage in good deeds because they're profitable for men. Then verse 9, I like this. Look at this. But avoid foolish controversies. I think this is so interesting. And genealogy and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Yeah, there's so much in that. Well, for, so that's, I believe, getting into a Jewish, but one aspect that, that I think we can pull, I'll, I'll extrapolate out of that, avoid foolish controversies and genealogy. In the modern charismatic church, you have this ridiculous teaching about, forgive me, that's, maybe I shouldn't be so harsh. There's this teaching that I consider to be untrue and harmful. Uh, it's one thing if something's untrue, but it's another thing when it's untrue to the point that it can harm people's walk with God. There's a difference. Genealogies. Ever heard of generational curses? Yeah. You ever lived in that bondage of believing that stuff? Yeah. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Which that reminds me, by the way, uh, in my second closing here, of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll pull it up here for you. Paul, Paul says here, I urge you, 1 Timothy uh, verse 3, in Macedonia, remain to Ephesus, uh, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention, look at this, to myths and endless genealogies. And that's what this generational curse stuff is. Well, was it, did I get this curse from my dad? Or I got it from my grandfather? Or maybe my great-grandfather? What about my great-great-grandfather? Or what about grand, grandpa 10 times you know, down the line? And it's this idea that somehow there's this curse on me because someone in my family before me sinned. Well, the truth is, you got to go all the way back to Adam because that's where it started. You're talking about a, the Adams family? <laughs> You're talking about dysfunctional, you know, and all that? Well, thankfully, Jesus went back to the root of the problem. He didn't just deal with sins. He dealt with sin itself, the root of the problem, which was Adam, who introduced this, read Romans 5, this fallenness, if you will, to the human condition. And Jesus just went back to the root. And, you know, he's the second man, the last Adam, right? I'm sure that's more of what it is than I'm extrapolating you know, but I'm sure that's much more along the lines of probably what it's, yeah. Good to see you, Burns. Love you guys. Yes, I'm sure it's more along those lines for sure. Because even John the Baptist had to tell the Pharisees, you think just because you're the offspring of Abraham, God could raise up children of these stones. Don't think your genealogy makes you something. I've heard it put this way. Think, think, think about this here. Scripture, we know Jesus condemned the traditions of men. But then you have Paul in different places, in Timothy and 2 Thessalonians, uh, different places, telling them to, you know, hold to, hold fast to the traditions, but there's good tradition and there's good and bad tradition. So it's been said uh, that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But good godly tradition is the 
living faith of the dead. I think I said that right. Yeah, traditionalism, we, we don't do it that way around here. We just do it our way. Our denomination does it this way. Bless God. That's not how we do things around here. That's traditionalism. Choosing your man-made tradition over the Word of God, right? That's the dead faith of the living. But there is good tradition. We all have good tradition. Think about, maybe not in a religious context per se, think about your family life. Most of us have holiday traditions we but in a godly, there, there are good traditions uh, in the kingdom of God, you know. And so that tra good tradition, I don't know if I had a better word for it, you know, is the living faith of the dead. So that is, there are certain things that have been done certain ways in generations gone by, and it can still be good and valid and godly to continue that way. Does that make sense? I, I, okay. Because sometimes as we just, we see Jesus saying, condemning the traditions of men, and then we're like, well, that's it. But there are, Paul tells us multiple places, there are such things as good traditions. You know, so that's just a, uh, uh, oh yeah, here, uh, let me pick up here and then I'm finished. I'm already finished, really. I'm just enjoying myself a moment, but. So he says, which give rise, and this is the thing, they give rise to mere speculation rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. Notice this. This is so good. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. What about Paul? Wanting to be teachers of the law. But they do not understand what they're saying or the matters about which they make such confident assertions. Verse 8. We know the law is good if you use it lawfully or the correct way. So, okay, how's that work, Paul? Realizing the fact that the law, law of Moses, is not made for a righteous person. Anybody in here happen to be the righteousness of God in Christ? Well, guess what's not made for you? The law of Moses. The law is not made for a righteous person. But the lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, killers of fathers, mothers, murderers, immoral, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So that's what the law is for. And even in that, it was only given to one nation, the Jewish people. But Romans 10, I'm finished, 4 tells us Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Beautiful. And I'll put that up here. But Yes, Romans, that's such a beautiful verse. Romans 10, verse 4. Look at that. For Christ, it's so small is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Boom. I like it. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.